Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues, Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and Dalibur Rohaj, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have tended to emerge along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. Our guest today is Elizabeth Bra, yet another AEI fellow, um, who's going to talk to us uh, especially about uh, the d desire of Finland and uh, other Nordic countries to knock down the door and get into NATO. I expect, too, we'll talk about sort of political warfare, if you will, the, the broad category of gray zone and other forms of uh, non-kinetic warfare, to use the horrible uh, uh, terms of art uh, in which uh, Elizabeth is expert. Um, but I'm going to turn the, the program over for the first question to my colleague, Dalibor Rohac. Dalibor, why don't you get us started? Thank you, Giselle, and great to have you on the program, Elizabeth. Uh, <clears throat> You um, wrote a book uh, published through AI called Defender's Dilemma, where you talk about the various forms of gray zone warfare and uh, and how to deter it, uh, which I commend highly to uh, listeners' attention. Uh, I wonder if you could elaborate uh, on the background that has led to the current ongoing application by Sweden and Finland to join NATO, because obviously their history with Russian interference, Russia testing their airspace, Russia you know, doing all kinds of stuff in cyberspace and elsewhere, uh, long predates the current invasion of, 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 of Ukraine, the events of the past, past three months. So how has Russia threatened these two countries over the past seven or so years? Uh, and what are they being threatened with right now from the Kremlin? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure, even though uh, it shouldn't be a pleasure to talk about national security threats. But it, it's it's a, a, now that they exist, it's a pleasure to join you here on the podcast to discuss the, the current situation. So uh, Sweden and Finland both have long experience with uh, Russian threats. Finland also has experience with intimate experience with Russian aggression. Um, Sweden, not so much. But uh, in recent years, Dalibar, you asked, you asked about the past seven years or so, what has been obvious, uh, even though it may not have been obvious to the rest of the world, is that Russia is very good at, at using tools below the threshold of armed violence. And that is what it has been doing with, both with, uh, towards Finland and Sweden and, and also towards other countries. But in Finland and Sweden, it has, for example, manifested itself through uh, flight incursions, uh, almost flight incursions, which are almost as as damaging as 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 uh, air incursions themselves, because if you see an aircraft approaching, you obviously have to scramble, and that costs uh, uh, valuable resources, personnel resources, wear and tear on the aircraft. Um, so Russia has done that repeatedly over the, the past few years. There have also been incidents of suspected uh, submarine intrusions, and that's an area 
where Sweden is particularly affected, you'll remember there was a major submarine hunt in 2014, which is now eight years ago, but nevertheless, a major submarine hunt uh, where, uh, based on credible evidence of um, an intrusion by what uh, appeared to be a Russian submarine, it was never uh, found. And that's unsurprising because Sweden has a very long coastline. It's also a coastline that's lots of archipelagos, lots of shallow water. So it's an, it's easy for the, for the intruder, very tricky for the defender. Uh, but uh, that's an area where the Russians have, have kept, uh, I think, the Swedish armed forces awake at night. And in addition, it has been using a lot of, of non-military tools um, including disinformation, and to, to try to make, make, make the two countries feel bad about themselves. And the most recent example of that is uh, an almost bizarre disinformation campaign that took place not in, in Sweden, but in, in uh, Russia, but directed against Sweden, where, and this was just uh, recently, where various Swedish icons of, of uh, um, recent history were depicted as Nazis or the, 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 this uh, campaign um, alleged that they had been Nazis. So, for example, the author of Pippi Longstocking and the founder of Ikea. So all of that contrib- has the intent has been to, to try to weaken Swedish and Finnish society and try to make the citizens feel bad about them, about their country and about their armed forces ability uh, to defend the countries. And, and just one more point on that during the 2014 submarine hunt, um, there was a a disinformation campaign going on at the same time that essentially poked fun um, at the, the Swedish efforts to find the submarine and essentially said, well, you know, your, your Navy is, is useless, can't even find the submarine. And if you're not uh, a submarine expert, you may not know how difficult it is to detect and let alone catch a submarine in, in these particular conditions. So uh, the, and, and the point of, of aggression beneath the uh, below the threshold of armed aggression is that you can keep innovating, and that's what Russia is doing. I wonder if we can go briefly, and you kind of touched upon it, you already prepared the ground um, on Sweden. Um, I, first of all, I didn't I didn't follow that um, the author of Pippi Langstocking, I think in English, is, uh, is portrayed as a Nazi. She was my favorite author growing up. Um, but I wonder, we've had someone, a, um, a friend of ours, a few weeks ago when the news um, became big that Finland and Sweden are joining um, or want to join NATO. And um, we had someone from Finland um, explaining to us kind of the Finnish rationale of wanting to join NATO. Um, and I think it was even Alex Stubb, the former prime minister of Finland, who said if it wouldn't have been from the, for the 2022 invasion, Finland would not have joined Um and, and I wonder if you can help us make sense of the Swedish case that has less of a territorial threat perception compared to Finland, um, where we had a similar reluctance and an even longer standing tradition of neutrality. Um, in, in support of that in terms of public opinion and also where resilience to Russian aggression is 
um, at uh, its height. I remember the case uh, a few years ago, it's now several years ago, when um, Sputnik opened in Swedish language. And it was this unique case of less than a year later, Sputnik having to close because um, Swedes were just not reading it. We're not buying um, disinformation and propaganda. So with Sweden being further away, longer neutral, for a longer time neutral, and even more resilient than most countries, um, can you help us or talk us through why there was this big shift um, that explains why Sweden is now wanting to join NATO? Yeah, so Sweden, uh, starting with World War Two, really, but uh, of but going back uh, much longer, de facto was was neutral, and, and in World War Two, it, de- it declared itself neutral, and that policy was was continued throughout the Cold War. In the case of Finland, it didn't really have a choice; uh, it was forced. Uh, neutrality was forced upon it by the Soviet Union, but for Sweden it was an ideological choice, and it was the the long governing social democrats who saw this as as um, as a way of making Sweden really unique in the world. So it wouldn't be with on the sort of imperialist side of NATO and and the US, but clearly also wouldn't want to join uh, the Warsaw Pact. And and it was um, it it was really um, if you think about it quite audacious to, to position a small country between the blocks like that uh, then as as historians and, and military experts have later found out Sweden did rely on did have uh, uh, secret arrangements with the US to, uh, with the the goal of the US providing military support should Sweden be invaded but nevertheless those of us who grew up there during the Cold War did so in the belief that that um, Sweden would look after itself and it was really a hugely impressive uh, effort um this total defense effort that the, that would see or that saw um people obviously serve in the armed forces including large reserves but also the rest of society being put to to use in in uh, whatever capacity they would be needed in in case of of innovation so it was really a, a massive effort and and one that uh, was introduced by the government, but built on on enormous willingness by the population to be part of of defending the country in case of an invasion. Now the government used it very much, I think, for used used this neutrality for sort of solo uh, performances on the global stage that weren't always beneficial for to the country. But but uh, that was the case. Um, until the the end of the Cold War, then in 1995, Sweden and Finland joined NATO and de facto gave up neutrality because uh, joined the European Union rather and de facto gave up neutrality because the EU has a mutual assistance clause. Um, then nothing very much happened because it wasn't obvious. It wasn't there was no urgency to, to change that position simply because um, things were getting more peaceful. And so why why would you change your your um, your position in as 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 non NATO members, there was no need for it. But the big change happened on the twenty fourth of February, and it didn't happen in Sweden. It happened in Finland, and specifically, it happened with the Finnish public, which uh, made a, a complete turn um, and went from very small support of NATO to very uh, strong majority support in favor of, of joining NATO. That was something that was completely unexpected. And as a result, the Finnish government said, and the Finnish parliament said, well, we'd better join NATO. Now that the public feels so strongly about it, 
And that left Sweden in the position, or the Swedish government in the position of uh, having to, to apply to join NATO too, because you can't be all by yourself outside NATO, especially since Finland and Sweden have very close military cooperation and have been building it up as a sort of a mini uh, substitute for NATO. Well, it couldn't be just Sweden by itself outside NATO. So so the Social Democrats have once again in government said, well, <laughs> we're supposed we have to join NATO then. And so I, I don't think NATO has ever had a less enthusiastic applicant than Sweden, but that's that's where we are joining because couldn't think of an alter- or, or couldn't think of a reason not to, uh, and uh, that's that's where we are. Elizabeth, if I could just ask one further question uh, about Swedish attitudes, and and feel free to speculate on Finnish attitudes as well. I, I wonder if some of this is also due to an appreciation of German and French disinterest and sort of weakness uh, in the face of Russian aggression. Not, not, so it's not simply that uh, NATO is the least bad option available, but uh, that there doesn't seem to be, uh, a, you know, a, a Europe-only uh, viable response to the threat. Uh, is, is there any... any Truth to that, would you say? And and can maybe we can build that into, and you can help us understand or explain better why now Denmark, as you're looking at the at all the countries in in the region, why now Denmark has decided to opt in to what it had before opted out the European foreign and security policy broadly. Yes. Yes. So. Why not go for a European alternative? Uh, is your question, I think, Giselle. And and I think the answer is that there isn't a, a European alternative. And and, and so France uh, and specifically President Macron likes Metal? to <laughs> float ideas every now and then of of various European entities that that could do the job. But it that's where it ends. And even the European Intervention Initiative that was uh, a, a pretty uh, um, pretty well developed concept, and that was then also turned into. Um, well, it was given live through a, a through a set of regular meetings. Um, it's it's still just a set of regular meetings uh, in which the participating countries dutifully participate, but nothing ever comes out of it. You see a photo that the defense ministers have met again, and that's it. So, if, if you want to join any sort of military uh, outfit. In Europe, it, it, it's it's NATO. Um, the the only uh, and, and this is a sort of a, a tiny version of NATO, but the only other outfit there is is the the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is a UK-led initiative, and now consists of ten countries, including Sweden and Finland. But that, as it says on the tin, it's a it's a, a Joint Expeditionary Force. It's not there for territorial defence. Um, so it's it's going to be in, in reality it's NATO or nothing and and of course it's only NATO because the U.S. is in it and and uh, as we speak um, the U.S. Navy is participating in a in a Baltic Sea naval exercise and um, just had a, a very major vessel come to salute uh, the Swedish Navy on its 500th birthday um, a few days ago so uh, the 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 interest and the trust. In the U.S. military, to to be the the pillar of European defense is 
extremely strong, even in these two countries that have for so long stood outside any formal uh, cooperation with, well, they've, they've had formal cooperation with NATO and the US, just not as, as equal members. So why then is uh, Denmark opting into um, EU foreign and security policy when it was so adamant for a long time to keep it as an opt-out? Yeah, so uh, sorry, I forgot to, to answer that question earlier. Yeah, so that has more to do with, with Danish skepticism of uh, towards European federalism than it has to do with any military capabilities. And and, and as, as uh, you all know, uh, what you do, what, what is done within European, with it, within EU common defense and security policy are various pretty low key missions crucial but but uh, low key in in the scheme of things for example patrolling the waters of the horn of africa and and so it's not as much a matter of of wanting more military protection which denmark obviously gets from nato but but more of a, a recognition that you can be skeptical towards eu federalism and still support uh, common and, and, and common defense and security policy uh, and on that note one should point out i think that and, and as you all know that the eu has been trying throughout this ukraine war to to find a way in which it can play some sort of military role. And it's it's a painful process, but um, all credit to those who are trying. I, I certainly agree that it's worth <clears throat> overcoming this, this sort of dichotomy that people, in particular in Washington, make between European initiatives and, and, and NATO. Uh, I think there is just a worthwhile role for within PESCO or, or these sort of EU structures for, for countries to sort of work together on various procurement projects or, you know, ad hoc, ad hoc, sort of pro- pro- projects uh, which do not detract in any way from from NATO's capability but I was I was, I was going to ask you um, a question about about Sweden's and particularly Sweden's application to, to NATO which seems to have one wrinkle namely uh, Turkey's position towards towards the country's future membership and and this sort of grievance about the Kurdish question which as you wrote recently, does not seem to be simply a transactional sort of you know ploy from Erdogan's part, where he would be trying to extort other members and get some concessions, but rather it seems to be a matter of principle or, or sort of ideological commitment. So if you could sort of elaborate on what is at stake and, and how things are likely to play out in the coming months. Yes, as you say, Dalibor, when, when President Erdogan first surprised everybody by blocking Sweden and Finland's accession uh, by by criticizing their policies towards the Kurds or the, the fact that they have they have given uh, asylum to Kurdish militants, I think we all said, ah, ha, ha, he has spotted a, an opportunity to get something out of the US again, and I bet he wants to join the F-35 program, but it turned out not to be. Uh, that and he may still want to join the F thirty five program, but but his his uh, pointing to Sweden and Finland and 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 uh, their um, them hosting Kurds uh, seems to be um, as you say, Dalibor, a real grievance and something that he has clearly been annoyed by for a long time and considered a. a, a disrespectful to Turkey and and a threat to Turkey for a long time and and. Let's be honest, it's about Sweden, it's not about Finland, but uh, 
Finland is essentially collateral damage in, in this uh, or in this blockage of, of uh, the the, the Swedish-Finnish NATO membership bids. And this actually comes back to, to Swedish neutrality during the Cold War when Olof Palme, the prime minister, long-time prime minister in particular, he um, felt that Sweden as a neutral country could take positions that other countries couldn't. And in particular, well, for example, he looked down on, on NATO countries' uh, ability to receive uh, asylum seekers from countries with uh, right-wing dictatorships, uh, which he felt that that uh, they were unable to to do, whereas Sweden was able to receive uh, asylum seekers from anywhere in the world because Sweden was neutral, and so he took pride in, for example, uh, welcoming Kurdish asylum seekers to Sweden, uh, a, a large number of them, back when when uh, when other countries maybe didn't. Uh, receive them as quite as enthusiastically or not enthusiastically at all. So, but what uh, the upshot of that was, uh, uh, the upshot of that was lots of Kurds in Sweden, a very significant Kurdish minority, but also a number of Kurdish militants. And this is clearly what rankles uh, Erdogan today. And and uh, so one could almost say in a sort of paradoxical way, Olaf Palme, who was a, 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 an a committed um, opponent of NATO is, uh, in a sense, waving from the grave because this issue, uh, which was his doing, Sweden's strong commitment to the to the Kurds and, and welcoming of, of Kurdish refugees, including militants, uh, could uh, derail Sweden's NATO membership bid. I don't think it would permanently derail it, but it's sure causing a massive headache and uh, almost causing a, a, a parliamentary crisis in Sweden, which I'm happy to, to discuss if if you'd like to go that uh, uh, deeply into the question. But the point is that uh, um, it's, it's far less straightforward than everybody had predicted. Well, I, I don't. If you're on a roll, Elizabeth, I don't want to talk about the parliamentary factions in in Sweden. I hesitate to stand in in the way of that. But I did want to uh, draw you out at some point on the sort of theory of gray zone warfare and what we are to make of this. Whether the desire of uh, Finland and Sweden to join NATO, even if the principal motivation is the actual invasion of Ukraine whether these uh, provocative gray zone acts of the Russians prior to that have proved to be essentially strategically counterproductive. So as, as a theorist of um, the, this sort of uh, competition or warfare, what, what do you make of the new data sort of that uh, the last couple of months have produced? Yeah. So, Russia's campaign against Ukraine was brilliantly executed until the 23rd of February. Uh, it was succeeding in weakening Ukraine, weakening the Ukrainian economy, scaring investors away, uh, frightening um, international markets, uh, causing companies to pull out of Ukraine, because which company wants to invest in, in Ukraine or have operations there when, uh, when an invasion is imminent? And yet, you're within your rights to have your 200,000 soldiers on your side of the border if you wish to. 
and it was Russia was also managed in succeeding in, in making shipping in the Black Sea very complicated because which shipping companies want to keep shipping in the Black Sea when there, there are lots of uh, Russian um, uh, naval uh, activities going on and where you have to worry that, that your ship could uh, could be targeted or could become uh, collateral damage. So, uh, or it could be could become inadvertently targeted. And that is, in fact, also what has happened since uh, the, the 24th of February. But I have never met Putin, but it seems to me he lost his nerve and he could have kept going with gray zone aggression and turned Ukraine into a failed state um, because the economy would have kept um, struggling. Uh, but this is clearly, for him, this is not, not uh, about dry facts of the Ukrainian economy and how to make Ukraine struggle as much as possible. It clearly has an emotional component. And so he he uh, he essentially gambled that whole gray zone advantage away for the opportunity for to, to invade Ukraine. And, and as a result, well, we know the result. Does, is, does this present a lesson for other uh, gray zoners? Um, you know, imagine it, what... Can you imagine the the lessons or the questions are now in Beijing? Uh, you know, another great uh, lover of uh, such provocations. Um, does it incentivize them to to stay on the gray zone side of things? Or again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what do you reckon about that? About what the rest of the world? Uh, We'll, uh, it's an excellent question. So I think the lesson we should all learn is that uh, we have to demonstrate societal resilience. We should demonstrate that yes, you you may want you may go ahead with your desires to weaken our country in the gray zone, and we can't fully stop you, but we can limit the effects of what you are doing uh, by because we we are resilient as societies, uh, as economies, and we as as the public are committed to the well-being of our country. Now, in any liberal democracy, you'll always have people who don't care about the the continued um, freedom and prosperity of their country. But I think you'll have a critical mass of people who who uh, want to they want they want their country to succeed they want it to continue to be free and open and prosperous and they will do their part and and i think that's what we have to build on so if we signal that yes uh, we know that that you may want to attack us in the gray zone but we will uh, make sure that the damage is limited then uh, you change the the aggressors cost benefit calculus possibly not enough for the aggressor not to to try it at all but uh, at least for the for the you change it enough so that the the aggressor thinks twice about doing it and and um, that then becomes very successful deterrence. Of course, it has to be coupled with deterrence by punishment because deterrence by ni- denial alone is never strong enough. But that's the missing piece that I think we can build on in in our uh, in our Western countries. Just to bring the conversation back to Sweden. And maybe as an excuse to get into the weeds of Swedish politics, I wonder if we could talk for a few minutes about uh, one source of Russia's, not exactly gray zone warfare, but but rather leverage over Europe, and that's energy. So the European Union agreed on a partial oil embargo last week. 
and 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 just looking at Sweden, um, I mean, Sweden is getting roughly thirty percent of its of its uh, of its supply from from nuclear s- sources, and there has been a long-standing plan to phase out nuclear power, which, if I understand correctly, has been more and more contested in 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 in, in and debated again and revisited in recent years, uh, particularly. Uh, by the centre-right uh, moderates party. Uh, I wonder where the debate stands at the present time, both in Sweden and in Finland, where uh, there were some nuclear projects with partial Russian involvement even. I think the Russians got kicked out. I, I just wonder how these two countries are thinking about their long-term uh, energy outlooks, particularly in, in, in the light of, of, of the Russian Russian uh, aggression, and obviously in, with respect to their, their own climate commitments. Yeah, both countries, to their credit, uh, are very serious about um, trying to reduce their carbon em- emissions, which is clearly what every country needs to do, but uh, but not every country does. Um, so when it comes to how to go about it, Finland uh, is has an ambitious CO2 or climate change uh adaptation and mitigation strategy uh, that uh, includes nuclear, whereas Sweden, uh, this current government, which previously included the Green Party as well, has a more conflicted uh, attitude towards uh, nuclear. And and the Green Party uh, was felt very strongly about not not, uh, expanding nuclear power. Now, they are not in government anymore. So... so, uh, they and, and they are also more ideological than the Finnish Greens, who are in the Finnish government uh, and indeed have a, a senior posts in that government. The, the Swedish Greens are not in the government anymore, although they support the minority government. But they, let's say, that their power is limited, and they they uh, are in fact likely to uh, not get into the next parliament in the elections in September. So the point is that nuclear, this is a long-winded way of saying that nuclear may become um, a a more, is likely to become a more palatable or more accepted option for whichever government comes next. It's, it could be a social democratic government or a center-right government, but, but the Greens are not going to, most likely not going to be there. uh, And they are the ones who are, feel most strongly about not including nuclear. Uh, Then of course, the the perennial question is even if you don't go nuclear uh, you're still because we share one atmosphere you you'll still suffer the the damage if another another country's nuclear power plant uh, suffers some sort of damage or accident and and of course belarus is building one well has built one close to the border with lithuania which is extremely provocative and, and should concern uh, countries far beyond lithuania and by the way um now I'm revealing my age, but I do remember the morning when it was discovered that the the Chernobyl uh, plant had exploded. I remember it vividly. It was the same spring as uh, Olaf Palm was assassinated. So we had two sort of early morning uh, sort of wake up calls. I remember my grandmother called on both days to say she had heard on the radio first that uh, that Olaf Palme had been killed, and, and secondly, uh, in April it was of 1986 that uh, the Chernobyl nuclear plant had exploded. And of course, it was Sweden that detected it because the radiation made it all the way to Sweden. Well, before we get too deeply into dating ourselves, which is a game I don't care to play very much, thank you. 
Um, I do want to conclude with one um, last NATO question, because the alliance is, you know, shifting and changing because of the Ukraine war. And just to sort of overstate it, is on the cusp of becoming sort of an Eastern Bloc and a Western Bloc. Um, uh, I wonder how Sweden and Finland will sort of sort themselves out um, if accession is successful. I mean, uh, or will they be someplace in the middle um, if, if there are fissures within the, the alliance about either continuing the war or continuing to support Ukraine or a military posture, say, uh, after the war? That's an excellent question, Giselle, and I, it, it, it dawned on me that the Swedish and Finnish position might be neutrality within NATO, so siding neither with the Central and Eastern Europeans nor... Be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> <laughs> nor, nor with, the, with the French and, and the Germans uh, or anybody else. Um, peacemakers within NATO, I think that's the position they'll take. Uh, but on, on, a, on a more serious note, it is... Um, concerning that we are seeing these divisions and not just divisions but uh, but divisions carried out or uh, discussed very much in the public eye and with criticism um, thrown each by each side at the other side and then of course there is Turkey on top of everything pursuing its its own individual path within NATO so it, it is really concerning and um, I think, well, one can come down on on either side of of uh, either supporting the French and German uh, more restrictive, uh, more cautious path or p- policy towards uh, Russia and and uh, supporting Ukraine, or the Central and Eastern European um, approach of of more vigorous support. But never, I, whatever one the humiliators and the restrainers. <laughs> Whichever position one takes, the, the reality is that this division is really damaging NATO. And, um, and, and on top of that, Turkey blocking two countries' accession on, on, on the basis of something that I think every country except Turkey would consider not a vital matter of national security. Just as at the moment when NATO looked the strongest and... Uh, and strong but not threatening to anybody uh, come along come these divisions uh, that essentially make it look very very um, ineffectual and that is that is uh, should be a source of great concern both to those in charge in various member states and also to people like us who who uh, watch NATO and and see it as a as a cause for stability in Europe and the world. Well, that's the kind of somber note we always like to end on uh, here on the Eastern Front. Elizabeth Broth, thank you so much for, for joining us. From me, Giselle Donnelly and... Yulia Zoja and... Dalibur Rohat. Thank you so much for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges, the many security challenges uh, that have arisen along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. You can be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's all one made-up word. Um, and if you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you very much, and goodbye for now.